Well, it might sound like a boring start. Standardised measurements. After all, we've discussed alcohol, the pill, LSD, tanks, and rock and roll. So surely, standardised measurements sounds boring, right? Well, I would say no. The ability for all humans to have an agreed-upon set of measurements is one of these quiet revolutions of progress we never think about or really hear about. But before its invention, people were crying out for it. In pre-revolutionary France, it even caused riots. Such was the abuse of the old system of measurements. We have very few norms throughout the world. We use our own currencies, our own languages, we have our own cultures, our own sporting teams, our own music and books. Occasionally these become more globalised. But Manchester United are still of England, Harry Potter is still a British novel, rock and roll is still American, but the metric system is for the world. In the middle of Paris there is a room. In it, it contains the papers of Marie Antoinette, the papers of Louis XVI, the current French constitution, the first version of the Declaration of the Rights of Man, written in 1789, and next to that is the Constitution of 1791, and near that is a long, thick box. In it, it contains a stick and several fairly nondescript boxes. This is the two original etalons, or standards of the metre and the kilogram, made on the order of the National Convention and presented to the government in 1799. The metre was a fraction of the Earth's meridian, and the kilogram was the weight of a cubic decimetre of water. These were meant to embody natural standards. Measurements have changed markedly over the centuries. In many European cities and towns, there would be a noonday gun, which would fire when the sun was directly overhead, thus marking noon. Of course, it wasn't exactly 12. The sun isn't directly overhead at 12, it's just the closest approximation. What mattered was that everybody was on the same time. This is basically how humans operated for much of history, until recently, and the invention of base measures. Previously, if all knowledge of measurements were lost, you'd have no idea how long or how heavy something was. If I were to make a measurement and say something was 5 coeths long, you'd have no idea what that meant. But say 5 coeths meant 1 mile, you could work back from that. But what if you didn't know how long a mile was? Then I would say one mile was 1,600 metres, and you could work back from that. What if you didn't know what a metre was? You could go back to Paris and measure that lump of metal defining what a metre was. Yet, what if that was lost too? Well, the metre is just the approximation of the length of the meridian, which was one tenth of a millionth of the distance from the Earth's equator to the North Pole, measured on the circumference through Paris. But even that's not exact. Plate tectonics and the like move over time. 
Now, such is the progress of science that scientists are initiating base measurements so they are measured against ever more reliable natural phenomena. So measurements will be permanent forever. Arbitrary as those measurements are, they are vital to how we live and how we define life. We live our lives by the hour, judge our lives by the year. We think in measurements, tell a girl you're 5'11 compared to 6 foot and judge you by Tinder, that matters a lot. Entire lives can be changed by measurements. Measurements almost certainly began by using the most reliable things ancient man could find, our own bodies. Feet are the obvious first measurements. Almost every civilization has a unit of feet, which is often subdivided into fingers. In ancient Greece, the foot was the paus, which was subdivided into 16 dactyloi. In China, it was the chio and the swun. Other measures include the fingernail, human hair, palm, forearm, span and step. In Ethiopia, they used an earlobe to measure out medicine. Ease of use and accessibility was the first requirement of a good measurement. Of course, everybody has body parts. That was the first most important thing, while the second was its appropriateness. You can't measure the length of a road in human hairs. According to one story, Henry I of England decreed that a yard was to be the length of his arm. The human body was a very useful measurement for much of history. There is a pattern of the human body which the Greeks called proportionate or symmetrical, which was famously summed up by the Roman architect Vitruvius. But the idea that all ancient peoples went around with their feet measuring things claiming this to be a foot isn't true. A standard is merely the sample of a particular quantity which we choose is one value of that unit. The standard must be protected and housed and holding this standard gives power and authority. A society without measurements is not an advanced one. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us a story, quote, The Carthaginians tell us they trade with a race of men who live in a part of Libya beyond the pillars of Heracles. On reaching this country they unload their goods, arrange them tidily along the beach, and then, returning to their boats, raise a smoke. Seeing the smoke, the natives come down to the beach, place on the ground a certain quantity of gold in exchange for the goods, and go off again to the distance. The Carthaginians then come ashore and take a look at the gold, and if they think it presents a fair price for their wares, they collect it and go away. If, on the other hand, it seems too little, they go back abroad and wait for the natives to come and add gold until they are satisfied." This story has been repeated erroneously to describe trade with Native Americans and African tribes to show their primitiveness, but they are almost always false. Most civilizations cannot survive without adequate weight and measures. According to Judeo-Christian legend, Cain is supposed to have invented weights and measures, so that instead of humans living innocently and generously, they were now thrust into a state of cunning craftiness.
Measurements is one of the greatest results of globalisation. The proliferation of weights and measures all over the world have now been codified into essentially one universal system of weights and measures, adopted by almost every country on the planet. Some of the earliest records we have of standardised weights and measures comes of course from China. The Chinese were, and perhaps still are, obsessed with good state apparatus and maintaining good order, and there is evidence of careful and systematic measurements of jade artefacts in the Neolithic era. These were based on hands and were even as precise to list the difference between men and women's hands. The chō was a foot-long measurement about 16 to 24 centimetres long, depending on the region, and divided into the kun, which was the length of one finger, but then changed to be one-tenth of the chō. While these may have originated in the length of one's foot or finger, it was regulated to make it easy to duplicate measuring sticks. In the Zhou dynasty, 1045-256 BC, a national Chinese culture was being developed, with the written language being developed to a high level and great philosophers coming to the fore. The chore was still being used, with Confucius reporting his height to be 9.6 chore tall and his father being 10. The Chinese began to standardise many things including a specific harmonic system for the ringing of bells, which was of some importance, as they used it in the court's ritual religious ceremonies. By 400 BC, the Chinese had developed a 12-note system for the chiming of bells. Much ancient civilization draws a lot of legitimacy from standardised weights and measures. According to the Greeks, Pythagoras was treated as some form of demigod by many at the time, or at least a cult leader, and it was he who invented weights and measures for the Greeks, while the god Jupiter gave them to the Romans. For China, this was also true. The short-lived Qin dynasty, 221-201 BC, the first imperial dynasty in China, issued edicts for many weights and measures until it was replaced by the Han Dynasty, who also did the same. During the Han Dynasty, 206 BC to 220 AD, numerology and mathematics flourished. In 90 AD, the court document, History Documents of the Han Dynasty, defines both the Chō and capacity measures in terms of the number of minute grains placed end-to-end. These measurements were often confined merely to court, and partly because China is so vast, it was difficult to export these measurements to the marketplace, where merchants and craftsmen would often improvise. Nevertheless, they would often bear some loose relation to the official measurements. The idea that there were advanced measurement systems in ancient Greece or China I don't think would surprise anybody. But while these systems were set up in a very standard model, or at least so we think today, in West Africa there was a radically different way to standardise weights and measures. The Akan ethnic group 
is spread across modern-day Ghana, Congo and the Ivory Coast, and they would use brass castings to portion out small amounts of gold. This happened for at least 2,000 years, hence the name Gold Coast. By the 14th century, there was a thriving trade economy based on gold dust. The earliest African weights were with seeds, stone and pottery. But when the Islamic traders came, the Africans switched to cast metal. Akan gold weights are weights made of brass and used as a measuring system for weighing gold dust, which was the currency until replaced by paper money and coins. Used to weigh gold and merchandise, at first glance the gold weights look like miniature models of everyday objects. Based on the Islamic weight system, each weight had a known measurement. This provided merchants with secure and fair trade arrangements with one another. The status of a man increased significantly if he owned a complete set of weights. Complete small set of weights were gifted to newly wedded men. This ensured that he would be able to enter the merchant trade respectably and successfully. While the Westerners treated weights as an interaction in which one uses an object in conjunction with an instrument to attach a numerical value to one specific property or another object, the Akans used brass casting together with a set of other apparatus in a compact social interaction. These castings were like standards for pricing. Their weight stands for an amount of gold dust to be exchanged for taxes, fines, services, goods and other things. In Europe, meanwhile, the early history of weights and measures is messy. By the medieval period, there were many different systems with different influences and origins. Originally, the Gallic tribes had their own weights and measures, but this was succeeded by the Romans. The basic weight of measure was the livre or pound. Meanwhile, Roman measurements like the arpent and the league still persisted. Each country and region used these measurements differently, altering the names and measures in different ways according to local needs and conditions. So, if you ever find yourself in charge of a mass empire of different rules and standards, the first thing you should do is impose a consistent measure throughout your territories. In France, in 1789 AD, Charlemagne was the first to do so, putting into use standards sent to him by Arab Caliph Harun Ash Rashid. After Charlemagne's death in 814, these reforms did not last long. Over the next few centuries, there were various reforms at trying to standardise measurements in France and in Europe in general. But like China before, this proved difficult, as French meteorologist Henri Moreau said, quote, The units varied not only from country to country and sometimes from province to province, but even from city to city, and also according to the corporation or guild. Of course, this state of affairs led to errors, frauds, and continual misunderstandings and disputes. 
to say nothing of the serious repercussions such a situation was bound to have on the progress of science. The multiplicity of names given to poorly determined units and the diversity in the multiples and submultiples of the principal measure increased the confusion. China's centralized society and relative isolation from much foreign influx in trade kept its needs relatively uniform and helped stabilize its weights and measures. In West Africa, traders and merchants managed to use their weights and measures alongside those of foreigners. France, in between England, Spain and the rich Northern Europe, made France a cross-zone of influences, forcing workers to continually adapt or reinvent measures. To show how confusing this is, most European countries developed a name for the amount of land that a farmer could plough in a day with an ox or horse, or a team of them, or just a man by himself in a day. But the unit also depended on the crop. Catalonia had a unit for cornfields and vineyards, while varieties on climate and land would affect this measure, while the transporting of goods also resulted in different measures. Goods that needed to be transported on the back of an animal came to be measured in bags, sacks or packets, and it also depended on the size of the animal, the goods carried and the distance. Polish economist Witold Kula wrote of this, Quote, we know of a situation where, within a single village, one measure was used in the market, another in the payment of church tithes, and yet a third in rendering Jews to the manor. When states were politically strong, these could be consolidated and simplified. In feudal Europe, the state was not strong. Then, in a short space of time, the feudal system broke down, and a revolution in many things took hold. In France, what swept it all away was the French Revolution. The French Revolution's aims, as disparate and vague as they were, and often a failure, but in certain respects, like the sweeping away of feudalism and pushing France towards a more modern system, it can be seen as a success. With the Industrial Revolution slowly starting, European industrial workshops were dependent on machines, clocks, spinning jennies and steam engines. So, there was a clear need for more precision. Feudal lords were often one of the key blocks on standardised measurements, and with the expansion of international markets, both domestic and international, there was a need for commonly agreed upon weights and measures. This coincided with a growing sense of national identity, which the French were the first to exploit, as shown by the huge armies they could muster with which to defend the nation. Rather than viewing yourself as coming from a town, your identity was now with the nation. If a nationwide system of weights and measures was put in place, you might be more inclined to follow it than before. Furthermore, science was now an actual thing, not just rote memorization of Aristotle's mostly incorrect observations. Beginning in 1586, 
with Galileo's first piece of scientific writing, The Little Balance, it describes his improvements on common measuring instruments and its use for defining the relative densities of substances. It was written when he was only 22 years old. Newton's principle, 100 years later, helped define space as something single and uniform. There was only one set of mathematical principles that defined nature. In 1690, John Locke continued this line of inquiry, stating that a length is just an idea we have of a certain amount of space. Once humans have that idea, they can apply these lengths to measure bodies, regardless of their kind of size. Measurements should have no necessary connection to human parts. They are purely abstract determinations. Measures should not emerge from workshops and the tasks performed there, but fashioned by the human mind. The idea that measurements should not be related to a human's own body parts reinforce the idea that decimals should be used when measuring, rather than fractions. It's easy to say you want half or double of something in a marketplace, but as the scientific revolution took hold, scientists found their need for precise measurements were not being met. Galileo struggled to measure time exactly enough to measure pendulums and balls rolling on inclined planes. William Harvey had difficulty measuring blood flow, and Johannes Kepler recognised the value of precise astronomical measurements. Slowly scientists began to meet to try and do something about it. In 1666, Louis XIV sanctioned the French Academy of Sciences and were able to undertake projects like studying the shape of the Earth, while the British Royal Society was incorporated in 1662. The two societies began to collaborate. The two agreed to try and find an unchanging phenomena that could be used to evaluate the accuracy of standards and to recreate standards. If they were damaged, lost or destroyed, then they could be refound. There were two standard ideas. The first was a seconds pendulum, which Galileo had discovered that the oscillation of a pendulum only depends on its length. The other candidate was the Earth's meridian. The Earth's meridian would be difficult to measure, but it would remain more about constant. For 100 years, scientists tried to perfect the new measurements by measuring the meridian as perfectly as possible. But all the proposals were pointless without political energy to enforce these findings. On the 14th of July, 1789, the Bastille was stormed and the French Revolution began. There is no one cause of the French Revolution. Merely, it was a concatenation of events. The constant mismanagement by the elite classes and the aristocracy of the French state was perhaps the principal cause. Furthermore, many, not just scientists, were angry about the state of weight and measures in France. The abuses that had come from the use of the old weights and measures meant that the new National Assembly was petitioned for new standards. The National Assembly gave the job of reforming weights and measures 
through Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigold, more commonly known as simply Talleyrand. Talleyrand sent a proposal to the National Assembly, quote, The great variety in our weights and measures occasions a confusion in our ideas and necessarily an obstruction to commerce, close quotes. He continued to say that the measures should be based on a quote-unquote invariable model found in nature. Talleyrand continued to say that England will surely join France in this common reform, quote, in which our commercial connections give us a common interest, and which, hereafter, be beneficial to the whole world, close quotes. The National Assembly approved Talleyrand's proposals for metrological reform, and so did Louis XVI. One National Assembly committee proposed a decimal-based system for the new standard, and another for a system based on natural standards. The second of these committees issued a report called On the Choice of Unification of Measures, which gave three possibilities for the natural standard the length of a second's pendulum swing, a quarter of the Earth's meridian of the Earth's equator, or a quadrant of the meridian running through Paris. The committee chose the third choice. The basic length would be a ten millionth part of the Paris meridian. The Academy wanted a standard that all nations might adopt, rather than something that might try and promote the interests of France. In this, they chose the name to stem from the Greek word for measure, metron, or meter. The Academy then set out to create a decimal system of length measures based on multiples and division of this new meter. Capacity units would also be produced by cubing these length measures, weight units by filling these capacity units with distilled water, meaning length capacity and mass units would now all be linked together. The entire system would be linked together and the entire system was now universal and unchanging. Talleyrand took this plan back to the assembly which approved it on March the 30th 1791. However, this still required measuring the meridian, discovering the weight of distilled water at freezing point and all this while the French Revolution was in full force. On the 19th of June, 1791, a dozen Academy members met Louis XVI to discuss the project. The King was baffled as to why they wanted to measure the Meridian again, as they'd done it a generation before. But as they explained that new measuring techniques had made it more accurate, the King was distracted. He endorsed the project, but it was his last act as a free king. The day after was his infamous flight to Varans. The whole metric project would take seven years in the end, and through all the trials and the tribulations of the French Revolution, and the decimal fervour that resulted in 10-hour days, 100-minute hours, and 100-second minutes, the metric system for weights and measures was popularly supported. It was a clear and achievable goal, and part of the rational, egalitarian and universal society for which revolutionary France aspired to establish. With various imprisonments of the researchers 
and suspensions into the experiments of the new standards, the project was coming to a close in 1798. With this, Talleyrand invited several neighbouring countries to send their best and brightest, who were known to be sympathetic to the ongoing revolutionary government. They met on November 1798 and can be seen as one of the first international scientific congresses. The Congress wrote up its report on the length of a metre and the kilogram, and it was officially presented to the legislature on June the 22nd, 1799. This was seen in France as a landmark moment for science, metrology and civilization. In 1821, US President John Quincy Adams said of this moment, quote, The spectacle is at once so rare and so sublime in which the genius, the science, the skill, and the power of the great confederated nations are seen joining hand in hand in the true spirit of fraternal equality, arriving in concert at one destined stage of improvement in the condition of humankind, that, not to pause for a moment, were it even from occupations not essentially connected with it, to enjoy the contemplation of a scene so honourable to the character and capacities of our species, would argue a want of sensibility to appreciate its worth. This scene formed an epoch in the history of man. It was an example and an admonition to the legislatures of every nation and of all the after times. However, we all know, while this was a universal system, it had not quite been universally adopted. Part of the French revolutionary spirit was to export its ideas abroad, including the metric system. A French emissary to the United States was in a ship set for Philadelphia when it was damaged in a storm. It eventually landed in Guadalupe. A French colony divided as much as the French homeland. The emissary came from the controversial Committee on Public Safety and was jailed and then after much debate released and set free to set sail to the United States. As soon as he left the harbour, his ship was attacked by British privateers who took the emissary hostage and took all their cargo too. The cargo was auctioned along with the metre and kilogram on board. It would never be shown to Congress and, had the mission succeeded, it may have led to the United States adopting the metric system. In Great Britain, there was little call for reform, with one of the few reformers, the parliamentarian John Riggs Miller, who had no influence at all. Britain was the foremost industrial nation, and there was thought that there would be harm to British growth if it was implemented. Instead, after much delay, the British established the Measures Act of 1824, formalising the imperial state of units based on Roman units. However, the metric system did have some teething problems. Firstly, the French began to use imperial measurements again, calling a metre a third of a foot and a kilogram half a pound. Errors too were found in the measurement of the meridian meaning that the metre was about 0.2 millimetres short of where it should be, the kilogram a bit lighter than it should have been, and scientists realised that if an asteroid struck the Earth and changed its shape, 
it would have a huge impact on the meridian. But the initial obstacle with the metric system, the political one, turned out not to be a problem. Even after the Bourbon Restoration and the fall of Napoleon and then the fall of the Bourbons, the metric system remained in place. It was renewed by Louis-Philippe, who became the French king in 1830. He issued the system to be reviewed in 1837 and mandated that the metric system was to be the only measurement system and a fine of 10 French francs would be issued for every non-metric measurement used. The metric system reigned in France. John Quincy Adams, who was fascinated by weights and measures, and spent much of his presidency waking up at 5am to research and write about its importance, quote, Weights and measures may be ranked among the necessities of life to every individual human society. They enter into the economical arrangements and daily concerns of every family. They are necessary to every occupation of human industry, to the distribution and security of every species of property, to every transaction of trade and commerce, to the labourers of the husbandman, to the ingenuity of the artificer, to the studies of the philosopher, to the researches of the antiquarian, to the navigation of the marina, and the marches of the soldier, to all the exchanges of peace and all the operations of war. The knowledge of them, as in established use, is among the first elements of education, and is often learned by those who learn nothing else, not ever to read and write. This knowledge, if riveted in the memory, by the habitual application of it to the employments of men throughout life. Close quotes. He also said that the metric system, quote, a new power offered to man, incomparably greater than that which is acquired by the new agency, which he has given to steam. It is in the design of the greatest invention of human ingenuity since that of printing. Close quotes. In the first half of the 19th century, the metric system had only been accepted by four other countries other than France. Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and then the French colony of Algeria. During the Great Exhibition of 1851, which was the display of the greatest of Britain and other countries, there were innovative measurement machines. However, a problem was found all the machines measured different units, making comparing them difficult. The French entry, which of course measured using metric units, was also displayed. The judges then prompted the British society for the encouragement of arts, commerce and manufacturers to use a decimal system of measurement, and they chose the metric system to be the outstanding candidate. The first International Statistical Congress met in 1853 and passed a resolution that, quote, in the statistical tables published in the countries where the metric system does not exist, there should be added a column indicating the metric reduction of weights and measures, close quotes. While the second conference in 1855, the participants formed an organisation to promote international adoption of a universal system of weights and measures. This was supported by Baron Rothschild, the leader of the French banking family who also supported the policy. The fourth conference in London 
called for members to champion the measure in their home country, while by then, Colombia, Monaco, Cuba and Spain also joined the metric world. In Britain, there was much debate as what to do with the metric system. The House of Commons tried to legalise the use of the metric system over imperial, but the House of Lords changed it to mean that it was only allowed in contracts, not in trade. There was much conservative opposition to the metric system for one reason. Britain used the imperial system. The metric system was French. Indeed, one of the most vociferous opponents to the metric system was Herbert Spencer, the man who coined the phrase survival of the fittest. And he was so opposed to the metric system, he stipulated in his will that whenever a pro-metric bill was introduced into the British parliaments, his remarks on the subject should be reprinted and distributed to all its members. The other great industrial power of the time, the United States, started to make steps towards metrification. In 1866, President Andrew Johnson signed a bill legalising the metric system's use. The next few years saw a pro-metric flurry of activity in the United States, with several states encouraging the teaching of the metric system in schools. But in the United States, as in Britain, there was too much resistance to change. Geodetic is the study of the exact shape of the Earth, and in 1867, the first meeting of the International Geodetic Association met. This had implications for the metric system, as the meter was supposed to represent the exact distance of one ten millionth of the distance between the North Pole and the equator. At the second International Geodetic Association meeting, they urged the construction of new metric standards with their new precision. They wanted an international commission of scientists to oversee construction of this new standard, meaning, for the first time, it was to be taken out of France's hands. The French, obviously, initially balked at this idea, but on the 2nd of September 1869, Napoleon III appointed an international commission for the meter to meet in Paris. 25 countries accepted the invitation, and, after a delay during the year-long Franco-Prussian War, the convention met and agreed, after some delay, on May 20th, 1875, on what is now International Meteorological Day, to create an international metric commission. The United States were a party, but Britain was not not wanting to be a party to a larger organisation with more ambitious aims and potential to interfere with the metric system. While the US has never adopted the metric system, its imperial measurements are defined in terms of the meter. Britain only legalised the use of the metric system in trade in 1897. The United States is an interesting test case in metrophilia and metrophobia. It's almost a microcosm of the US as a whole. An extreme anti-metric movement was found in Ohio, where in the words of Robert Kreese, quote, xenophobia, rabid rhetoric, fabrication of facts, reimagining history, conspiracy theories, and appeals to preserve the purity of the nature and nation. 
The enemy was the other, subversives, socialists, foreigners and atheists, close quotes. All this could be boiled down to adopting the metric system over using the imperial one. A natural standard was the dream for many scientists. Many had tried with decent attempts, the French and measuring the Earth's dimensions, and the British and measuring a second's pendulum. But Charles Sanders Peirce was the first who showed how to do it reliably. His idea was counting wavelengths. You may not have heard of Peirce, who was arguably one of America's greatest polymaths, but he was a fascinating man, with many, many personal issues. His biographer, Joseph Brent, listed some of his issues, quote, on the manic side, he exhibited driven paranoia and impulsive actions, extreme insomnia, manic grandiosity and visionary expansiveness, hypersexuality, extraordinary energy and irrational financial dealings, including compulsive extravagance and disastrous investments. On the depressive side, he exhibited severely melancholic or depressive states characterised by suicidal feelings or flatness of mood, which were accompanied by inertness of mind, inability to feel emotion, and an unbearable sense of futility." James Clerk Maxwell, meanwhile, wrote a criticism of the meter, as it was not, as the new measurements pointed out, one millionth of the arc of the meridian, it was basically the length of a standard preserved in Paris. Meanwhile, Pierce was seeking a new route to a better natural standard. After much work and a couple of nervous breakdowns, he wrote a paper called Measurements of Gravity and Initial Stations in America and Europe. In it, Pierce proposed tying the meter to a wavelength. The principle was simple and involved two measurements. One was to determine the angle of deviation of a ray of light passing through a diffraction grating, the other to establish the spacing of the grating lines. The relation well known to physicists among the spacing of the lines, the wavelength of the light and its angular deviation would connect the wavelength with the meter. Pierce worked on the project for several years and never quite achieved his aims, but his attempts inspired others to an idea of a more natural standard, one that was truly fixed. If wavelengths were the best idea for a length, what about weight? The idea was by James Clerk Maxwell, who thought the best approach to solving a standard weight would be to measure a hydrogen atom. Pierce's work showed how light could be used to provide a more natural fixed standard, and in 1960, light would become the new definition of a meter. Much of the 20th century was spent trying to find a universal system for the metric system. By the turn of the 20th century, every country in Europe, apart from Britain, was using the metric system, and Britain now too was mostly trading with countries who moved the metric system. And so, as science moved on, so did the need for more precision. Albert Mickelson's comment that, quote, our future discoveries must be looked for in the sixth place of decimals, close quotes, is evidence of this. After the end of the Second World War, 
and the newly independent countries were quickly converting to the metric system, especially the former British ones, who could give one last stab at the British and their continuing use of imperial measurements. The last holdouts were Britain, which turned metric in 1965 despite the prevalence of imperial units. Even now, for some things, Britain still uses imperial pints, miles per hour, but then centimetres for some things and also kilometres. Nobody said the British make it easy for themselves. China converted in 1985, and of course America is still a holdout. Now you may have read in 2019 that there was a redefinition of base units, which formally defined the kilogram and three other basic units. This was simply making them more precise. There are seven base units, second, meter, kilogram, ampere, kelvin, mole and candela, all of which have the most precise measurements it is possible to get. This slow and gradual evolution of the definition of weights and measures allow for the constant improvement of scientific knowledge and technical progress. The importance of standardised measurements can be seen all over the world. Most famously in 1999, when a $125 million Mars spacecraft crashed after two teams of engineers used different systems, imperial and metric, to program the rocket. The meter is now so closely defined that it would boggle the mind of its early French innovators if they saw what the definition now was. Quote, the distance travelled by light in a vacuum in one 299,792,458 seconds. The standardisation of weights and measures has enabled the world to progress and helped foster international trade and commerce. It may not be the sexiest topic, but it is often the small steps which enable the big ones. And so for this reason, the standardised measurements, or the metric system, and the subsequent SI units are listed at number 72 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.